Worshipful brethren, brethren all, welcome to Freemasonry in seven minutes or less. In this episode, we'll be asking who were the operative Freemasons? The early history of Freemasonry is a topic that's often subject to wild fantasy and vague conjecture, as I'm sure that everybody with an internet connection is well aware of. Much is written about speculative Freemasonry, but not so much about operative Freemasons. As this was a time where literacy levels amongst the working class was low, this is not a surprise. To elucidate on the matter, I now pass over to you, Brother Earnshaw. Thank you. So I, I think we need to go back in time, uh, probably to the 1500s, uh, because um, there had been a boom between the 1100s and the 1350s. Uh, there had been a boom in building cathedrals all over Europe, and it suddenly came to a, a, an end in about 1713, uh, sorry, in... 1315. And so there was not much work for Masons. And though there were lots of buildings, there were cathedrals, besides cathedrals, there were uh, rich people's houses, uh, there were priories, churches all over England. Uh, but so mostly they only had repairs to do. And a lot of Masons got into trouble and fights and were um, uh, heavily fined. And you, if you look at the old papers, well, it's, it's not newspapers, but what was written in books about what was going on at that time, you will see um, uh, much written about their bad behavior. So, uh, but with the Great Fire of London in 1666, hundreds of Masons came from all across England looking for work. And the buildings in the old part of London, what we call the City of London, were made of wood and were very closely together, you know, shoulder to shoulder. Uh, so um, when the uh, when London caught fire, uh, it just was really impossible to, to put it out. It took three days to put the fire out. Mm -hmm. And it took another three days to actually get into the city because the earth was so hot, you couldn't stand on it. So it took a, a week for them to to assess the, the, the problem. Um, so there were four lodges uh, that started uh, speculative Freemasonry. The lodge at the Goose and Gridiron Ale, Gridiron Ale House was uh, set up in 1691, so after the Great Fire. And it was, it was right next to St. Paul's in, in a street called St. Paul's Churchyard. After St. Paul's had burnt down, uh, rebuilding started uh, in 1669, and it didn't finish until six, uh, 1711, so that 40, 42, 43, 42 years, 43 years. Um, so the operative Masons would have had meetings, uh, both uh, talking about building the, the cathedral, but also uh, just um, social meetings, and they chose a pub, and the pub they chose was the Good Goose and Gridiron, which was right next to their work site. Uh, Inigo Jones uh, would have also used um, taverns, and Inigo Jones was uh, was one of the architects that was first put on the old St. Paul's Cathedral before it burned down, uh, before um, Christopher Wren uh, started to rebuild St. Paul's. Um, 
After the Goose and Gridiron in 1712, two new lodges were built, were set up. There's the lodge at the Crown Ale House, which was in Drury Lane, and then the Apple Tree Tavern in Covent Garden. These two lodges were very close to um, large constructions. Uh, Covent Garden, which is a fruit and vegetable market, at least it was then. Now it's a very fashionable part of London. And uh, Drury Lane is famous for theatres. And uh, at the time, there would have been a lot of pubs and gin, what we call gin palaces there. So... Um, we, when we read the constitutions of uh, constitutions of Freemasonry, written in 1723, James Anderson says that the operative lodges had found them uh, found themselves neglected by St Christopher Wren. Uh, this is interesting. Um, it suggests that he was actually like a, um, had some authority over operative masons. Uh, I don't believe he was a grand master, but as he was an architect, of course, he was giving them work. But um, by this time, uh, he was uh, in, he was already in 1718. He was already 85 years old and he wasn't working very much. And that's probably why um, he he neglected um, to give them work, per se. Yeah. OK, I. I would urge all listeners interested to get a copy of the Constitutions. You can find a free copy online of the 1723 version. Uh, there is a facsimile reproduction of the 1738 edition, can be found for a few pounds, and it's well worth getting. Please get it and put it on your shelf. I don't think you'll regret it. Right. So um, we can learn so much from these constitutions. So a lot of the history is, is actually what they call the legend of Freemasonry is actually nonsense. But um, uh, we can, there's some references to St. Christopher Wren. Um, uh, John Sebastian Ward states that he was an arch guild mason in 1674. And George Oliver also says that Wren was a grand master. However, there was no grand lodge of operative masons, so it couldn't have been a, a grand master. I believe that um, this is a mistake for the architect's title. The, the royal household had set up uh, the Office of Works in the thir- uh, 14th century to oversee building projects. And one of those posts in the Office of Works was called Master Mason. Uh, for example, Nicholas Stone, had been appointed by James I to be a master mason. So it's possible that the guild, uh, the, the, the master's mason's guild referred to Jones and Wren as grandmasters um, who would be senior to master masons, though no such position actually existed. Um, one thing is there seemed to be some a little bit of friction between the speculative lodges and operative lodges. And uh, we know that sometimes the speculative lodges wouldn't let operative masons join in the meetings. Another thing about operative masons is that they also accepted um, people who were not um, masons to join their meetings, and they called this the exception. Uh, I think this is based on a Scottish practice which also let non-Masons join operative lodges. So um, 
We know also that um, Elias Ashmov visited a lodge in 1682, and he said that he was the senior fellow among them. So, uh, yes, we we understand that. But I don't think rich people and architects uh, would be interested in me working with blue-collar stonemasons for some reason. Okay, so this is where Ashmol enters the story. I didn't know that. Um, I would urge the listeners to research Ashmol as his personal interest may guide you into a particular direction of further inquiry. It's worth following up. Anybody who's listening, please research Elias Ashmol. <laughs> so um, this this exception or accepted masons uh, uh, explains the A to be found in AF and AM. So we call them ancient, free, and accepted masons. So it's ancient masons, Freemasons, and accepted masons. And these three types of masons uh, form modern speculative Freemasonry. Fantastic. Lots of information I didn't know once again. <laughs> and thank you, Brother Earnshaw. Well, that brings this episode to a close. If you have any questions you'd like to field, please click on the link below. And we now part on the square. And we will meet soon. Thank you. Goodbye. Goodbye.